Everybody have a seat. Yeah, that's okay. It's okay. You can clap your hands. It's allowed. God, you are you are worthy of applause. Uh, you're worthy of our adoration. You're worthy of our singing. But yeah, we're mindful that any declaration of praise that we can offer is is utterly insufficient to describe and to declare your matchless worth. Uh, you are indeed the King of Glory. And we want to be a people, we want to be a church, we want our lives to reflect the, the glory, the full weight and magnitude of who you are. And so as your people, for those of us in this room who are born again, who have been saved and changed by Jesus Christ, um, God, I pray that our lives would reflect that you are the king of glory. There's, there's no other earthly glory that, that we can pursue that would give us the satisfaction and delight of knowing you. Convince us of that today as we study your word. Again, as we have this brief time together, I pray that you'd increase our love for you, decrease our love for the things of the world, and that we leave here knowing that we've been in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, my name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to help you real quick here. I have a fair amount of verses, and so I'm going to actually ask you to grab your Bibles. I know it's a novel idea sitting in the church. If you don't have a Bible with you, you grab your phone. I'll trust you're not on Insta or something. If you're on your phone, uh, get your Bible app or whatever. And I want you to go to two particular places, Matthew chapter 1. And if you're using a chair Bible, which you'll probably find in front of you, uh, it should be on page, well, it will be on page 757 unless it's torn out. And then uh, we'll be in Isaiah chapter 7, which is on page 535. So we will largely kind of go back and forth between those two parts of Scripture. I'll be in a couple other places, but that's where we'll be first off. And we're going to begin by reading from the account of Matthew chapter 1, the account of really the beginning of Jesus' birth, the announcement to, to Joseph from the angel in Matthew chapter 1. We'll read verses 18 through 25, and we'll dive in together. So join there with me, Matthew 1, 18 through 25. And this is God's word for us. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel is quoting from Isaiah 7, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to his son, and he called his name Jesus. So one of the many very familiar stories this time of year, um, you know, we, last Sunday was kind of the really the first of four consecutive Sundays that many call Advent. You know, Advent is, really means arrival. 
It's a celebration of the arrival of Jesus. And so one of the particular challenges as a preacher at Christmas is that Christmas is so massively sentimental to all of us. You know, even like reading this story, like, oh, this is so, I love this. So cute. Well, it's not cute. It's the arrival of Jesus. But if we're not careful, we can kind of get wrapped up in the, the flood of commercialism and sentimentality in Christmas to where we just kind of reside in a place of just feeling a little bit kind of fuzzy about the season. And so what I want to do this morning through this familiar story, and many of you know the connection, is kind of use it as a springboard to go backward in this story to Isaiah chapter 7 where that prophecy comes from. But it is a season of anticipation, right? From time off to gifts you're going to receive and gifts you're going to give, travel plans, gatherings with family and friends, and all this creates a certain longing, like in our hearts. You know, we anticipate, most of us, the Christmas season kind of all year long. And there's some of you in this room, I want to ask you to raise your hand. Some of you will be incredibly sad on December 26th, just because this is the moment you've, oh, it's gone. All at once, the thing that you waited for is gone, and you're going to begrudgingly put your lights away, and you're going to have to wait another full year for it to come, right? But there's a sense of longing that seems to kind of be coupled with the Christmas season or the Christmas moment. But behind that overwhelming kind of commercialism underneath the sentimentality of Christmas, there is a longing and expectation that very much reflects the biblical reality of both the first arrival of Jesus and his next, his second arrival when he returns to get his people forever. And so it's that particular longing that I think we have to do some work to kind of cultivate and unearth and create more of in our own hearts. And for some of you, uh, I think it's, it's good to recognize too that Christmas time can be a source of pain and difficulty. You, know, you, may, not have, you may not have a job to be able to provide gifts for somebody else. You may not have someone who's gonna give you gifts the notion of gathering with family might even create a sense of pain because you, you're surrounded by some measure of broken relationships. You're estranged from a particular family member who you're just reminded in a particular way at Christmas that you can't be with them, either because of just the effects of sin in relationships or maybe because you lost them this year. And it's difficult, right? So, so even in this season, it's good for us to remember that there's a sting and there's a, there's a weariness that accompanies this season and it could even be that Christmas confronts you with your life lived apart from God. Because many people in our culture will come to church on Christmas, Christmas Eve, or much like Easter, in a particular kind of spiritual moment. But the, the moment doesn't necessarily offer comfort as much as it confronts the fact that we've been living our lives the rest of the year apart from God. But wherever you find yourself on the spectrum of emotions, whether it's the giddy kind of expectation or the weighty longing based on those things I just described, my encouragement would be something like this, is that Christmas ultimately is for the weary. Like Christmas, Advent, the arrival of Jesus is for the hopeless. And Christmas is for ultimately the guilty. So wherever you find yourself in the spectrum of all those different experiences, 
be encouraged that this message, this message of old that we've heard many times before is for you. And Matthew, who wrote this particular gospel account, is a Jewish man. And he tells us the angel's words to Joseph actually fulfilled a promise made centuries earlier to the people of Israel by the prophet Isaiah, some 700 years before Jesus was even born. And so this child, this son, Jesus, who will save his people from their sins, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And so I want to go back, and now is the moment where you flip to Isaiah chapter 7. What I want to do for a little bit is I want to paint the setting and the season this promise is given in, because it has a particular relevance to us in this moment, this cultural moment. It has some relevance, and it's not just some way in which we can look at the Old Testament and understand it better, although it is that. But at the point this promise is given in Isaiah 7, the people of Israel will divide it into two kingdoms. You have Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and so the presence of even civil war has broken up the nation of Israel, which is the people of God from throughout the Old Testament, this peculiar group of people that God had set apart to represent him to the world. So this kingdom of people has been divided now into two kingdoms. And in this moment, there's a king named Ahaz who's over the the southern kingdom in Judah. And so this promise comes through a prophet, Isaiah. A prophet is a herald of the word of God to his people. But this promise that we just read in Matthew chapter 1, that Jesus is fulfilling, is given to King Ahaz of Judah. And you'll understand why that's relevant in just a moment. So as we read through this particular part of Isaiah, I just want you to keep that in mind. So Judah in the south, Israel in the north, but they both possessed a common rebellion against God. They're estranged from God because of the rebellion against him. If you read the Old Testament at all, particularly the kingdom era, which is in 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you know a little bit of that. You have this rhythm of kings, the overwhelming majority of which were wicked and didn't do the things of God. And Ahaz was one of those particular kings. But the people are described in this way at the beginning of Isaiah's book, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It says this. It says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken, and what he speaks is the climate of the hearts of the people of Israel. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. It's deep corruption and darkness in the hearts of the people of God that have pushed got away, as it were. So corruption has always and will always flow from our lives when we unhinge from our relationship with God. We should expect no different. And in this sense, you could say that when, when we send God away, that we follow our own way. If we're not following the ways of God, we're going to be following our own ways or the ways particularly of this world. We reject his ways and you could say in some measure that we send him away. When we send him away, we walk in our own devices and our own ways. So you have the people described in Isaiah chapter 1 and King Ahaz, and I want to kind of give you the picture. And you can just kind of listen to this part. We'll get to Isaiah 7 in just a moment. But I want to give you this picture of King Ahaz. 
just to kind of give you a complexion, you find this in 2 Kings chapter 16, you'll find it in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, or 2 Chronicles 28 as well, if you want to read that later. 2 Kings 16, this is what it says about Ahaz. In the 17th year, Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, who were particularly completely wicked. Listen to this part. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills under every green tree. Second Chronicles 28 says this, verse 19 and 22. For the Lord humbled Judah, which is where Ahaz is king, for he made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same King Ahaz. So this outward behavior by, by King Ahaz and the people was, a, was symptomatic of having rejected God as their king. So why is this important? Well, this monumental promise of a rescuer that would come, this peculiar child born to a virgin, what hearts does it strike? Ahaz. And it, and it hits the people of God in this moment of deep, deep rebellion and darkness. It's not given to some even person in the kingdom that was walking somewhat righteously. It's given to one of the most wicked kings described in a more robust way in this procession of kings. And there's comfort in that, right? And our deep darkness to a people still dripping with rebellion and guilt, we get the promise as well. God is with us. Like in this moment, in Christmas, we have a particular moment where we stop and we celebrate, we think about in a deep way the arrival of Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate, God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus come to save his people from their sins. As we think about Ahaz's wickedness, it should remind us of something of our own. We shouldn't be too quick to throw a stone at Ahaz. But let's go to Isaiah chapter 7. We'll read the context that this promise comes in. In chapter 7, we're going to read verses 1 through 9. And I'll pause for a little bit, make some observations. Isaiah chapter 7, I think I said it was 5, what did I say, 535 maybe in your Old Testament? If that's off, you're going to have to find it for yourself. Isaiah chapter 7 says this, verse 1, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet amount an attack against it. So if you can just picture, just geographically for a second, you have Judah, in the south, Israel in the north, and you have kind of Samaria, which is a Syria and Assyria, both in the north. And so you have Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel getting together to wage an attack on Ahaz's kingdom in Judah. That's what's happening. All right, so if you can picture that, you got two countries getting together, and they're going to attack Ahaz and his people in the south. All right, that's what verse 1 and 2 tell us. Um, 
Sorry, I didn't get to verse 2 yet. Verse 2, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league or in cahoots with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, This is what God says, in light of this threat, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. So God is foretelling the the future coming as Syrian invasion that will ultimately kind of squash Syria and Israel's attack. He says, context is 65 years, Ephraim, he's northern Nations will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. Listen to this statement. If you are not firm in faith, Ahaz, you will not be firm at all. That'll preach. So Ahaz and Judah, the southern kingdom, were under attack by these two nations, Israel and Syria above. They're troubled. Their hearts are shaken like leaves in the tree. In the midst of Ahaz's fear, God sends Isaiah with these words. He says, be careful, like be quiet, listen to my words. Don't be fearful. Don't let your heart faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. I love this language. So he calls these two nations, which did like remarkable damage to Judah. It took people captive. You can see that in Second Chronicles 28 in more detail. There was significant damage done to Judah and people, a lot of death and pain. But God looks at us and he refers to those two nations as stumps of firebrands, which is basically just saying like, hey, they may cause you damage temporarily, but you need to understand that they're all smoke and no fire when it compares to my promise for you. They can't have you ultimately. And even Isaiah's son, his name means that a remnant will return. There's a promise nestled in Isaiah's son's name accompanying him to Ahaz to say, there's going to be a people, I will save a remnant for myself, and they'll ultimately return even after they're exiled. I'm going to rescue my people. So even this threat against you is just all smoke and no flame. But he says, if you're not firm in faith, you don't be firm at all. Anybody you might reflect that in your own walk with God. It's like if we're not firm in our faith in God, it's pretty difficult to find firmness anywhere. If you don't find your stability in God, then everything else will ultimately feel like shifting sand. And maybe this morning you need to hear from me just as a word of encouragement. If you feel like that's you this morning, like your life feels like nothing but shifting sand, you need to hear this word given to Ahaz, that if your faith isn't firm in the one true God, then there will be nothing in your life that will be firm. Put your faith in him. Rest in him. Find your joy and your stability in him. Ahaz didn't. 
And so in chapter 7 again, let's go to verse 10. Look at what happens after this. So God delivers this message through Isaiah. He says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. He says, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? We'll pause there for a second. So when God speaks to Ahaz here, in light of what he just said in verses 1 through 9, he looks at Ahaz and he says, test me. Test me and see if I'm faithful. This is really interesting. Because it's not to put the Lord your God to the test, like to, to see if he's real or not. God says, I want you to see how powerful and how faithful I am. Will you trust me? Will you, will you believe in me? Put me to the test. Ask me for something as high as the heavens or as deep as hell. Put me to the test. See if I'm God. See if I'm true to my word. And so it is important to realize that because what Ahaz says sounds somewhat spiritual. Like, hey, I'm not gonna, Lord, I'm not going to put you to the test. I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. But that's exactly what God told Ahaz to do. And so his pseudo-spiritual response is actually an act of all-out rebellion against God. I'm not going to put you to the test. And what we don't see kind of nestled in this moment is what Ahaz did instead is he forged an alliance with Assyria instead. Instead of trusting in God and the reliability and faithfulness of God, what he did is he forged an alliance with the world with some other king that felt more tangible or visible or powerful. And that tells us what? If you don't trust in God, it's just a, it's a reallocation of your trust somewhere else. Right? Because we trust in things. We trust in people. We can trust in riches or in princes and horses. Like You see that picture throughout the scriptures. If you don't trust in God, it's just a reallocation, a redistribution of your trust. Trust in yourself, whatever it may be. But Ahaz didn't trust in God. Ahaz's response may sound spiritual, but he, God says, will you? And Ahaz says, I will not. How about us? Maybe there's something in your mind that comes to mind immediately where you think, like, God is calling me to trust him for this. Is your response, I will not. Is there something in particular that God is calling you to trust him for? And is your response, I, I will not. I'm going to trust in other things. I'm going to forge alliance with other places and things and scramble about in my own resources to try to give myself security. In 2 Kings 16, 7, just a very brief depiction of this, Ahaz writes, well, he sends messengers to the king of Assyria. And he says this, he says, I am your servant. This is the king of Judah, interacting with God, God says, don't be fearful, listen to my words, put me to the test, no I will not, what I'll do instead is I'm going to be a servant and a son to a wicked king who's an idol worshiper. He says, I'm your servant, I'm your son, come up and rescue me. This is Ahaz's words to the king of Assyria, come and rescue me. Wow. 
We can say something similar here, like if you don't trust God to rescue you, what are you going to do? You're going to look for rescue in other places, right? You don't find your identity in God, you're going to find identity in other places. And so I pray that we be a people who, when we hear God at his word, that we trust in his promises and we don't try to find some other fraudulent source of security. Ahaz trusted ultimately in his alliance with the king of Assyria. He took silver and gold from the temple, money from his own piggy bank. He sweetened the deal with gifts. And he even became like the king of Assyria in his idol worship. There's this depiction given where he actually went to Assyria and he saw a particular altar. He's like, oh, that altar's pretty neat. And he comes back and he has his high priest replicate the altar, and he starts worshiping based on that. It's a little bit like, I don't know if you had this experience in like elementary school or junior high, where you had like some kids who may be a little bit small, a little more weak, like in the moment and the setting, and they find like the bully or the cool kid, and they do everything they can to be like that guy. If you were one of those, please forgive me. I'm not trying to discourage you. But like you've seen this, like they begin to talk like them, act like them, they give them their lunch money, like, hey, don't beat me up, take my Twinkie, right? Like, you see movies depicting this. This is somewhat what's happening here. It's like, take my money, I'll be your servant, I'll be your son, I just want to be safe. I just want to be safe. And I'm not willing to trust in God, but I'll put my trust in you. That's at the heart of it, right? I will not trust in the word of God. And Isaiah's fired up. Verse 13, he says, And Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? He's like, are you serious? It's not enough for you to distrust other men? You're going to distrust God? Despite Ahaz's determination to rebel against God, God won't be swayed from his determination to be with his people. And this is the moment where this promise comes in. That's what makes Matthew chapter 1. Like you, if you don't take a moment just to think about this setting, it just feels a little bit more sentimental. Oh, yay, it's a good reminder. Jesus is coming. Well, he's coming for the wicked, y'all. He comes for the King Ahaz's who didn't trust in him, rebelled against his name in all-out rebellion. And the next word should strike us with, like, how can this be? Like, this is unimaginable grace. Because God says in the next words, verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. You're not going to ask for a sign. You're not going to trust in his word. And you instead are going to scramble into the world to find your security. But take heart. The Lord himself is going to give you a sign. And that sign is going to be this peculiar son born to a virgin. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The virgin birth of Emmanuel, God with us, was a word of comfort and promise to a lost and wicked people then, and the same is true right now. To a, to a wicked and lost world and generation, to a people prone to wander, God says, I will do this myself. 
And even though you don't want to be with me, I'm going to come to you. So when you sit around and you open gifts and you enjoy all the good things about this moment, this season, when you enjoy the the grace of being with family, all the good things that came to mind earlier, don't let it overshadow the fact that even though you would not believe in God, that he chose to come to you. Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh. God says, you have rebelled, I will forgive. You do not know me, but I will reveal myself to you. You are covered in iniquity, I will save you. You are estranged from me, but I'm drawing near to you. You have sent me away, but I'm coming to be with you. What remarkable grace we have at Christmas to celebrate the birth of the Savior. And family, from the very beginning, like God created us to be with him, right? In the garden, at the beginning, there was a remarkable withness that we had with God, created in his image, perfect fellowship and relationship with God. Be it Adam and Eve's rebellion, just like ours, we send him away. We don't want to be with God. We'd rather be with the things of the world and rule our own kingdom. And God was so closely with Adam and Eve, his presence could be felt and heard. And you see that right before he confronts them with their rebellion. He was walking in the garden, as it were. He was like in the, the wind, the cool of the day. He was there, he was present, and the fruit of that rebellion that we see in Ahaz's heart, that we see in Israel, that we see in us, it finds its root all the way back in Genesis chapter three. This choice to say, God, you're not gonna rule over you. You've made me in your image, and it's good what you've given me here, and the one thing you tell me not to, I'm gonna choose to believe that you're actually not trustworthy, that you're holding out on me. I'm gonna choose to make my own rules. I'm gonna determine what's good and evil. And from that moment, the very thing we see Jesus bring and his, and his withness with us, God with us, that very thing is what was broken in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. This deep, like wonderful, very good withness with God. That very thing is what's broken ultimately as the final and ultimate consequence in Genesis 3. Therefore, the Lord God sent him, Adam and Eve, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. From the garden, this rejection of God becomes our problem, our nature. And the gospel blasts this message of hope that the angels that were set up to guard the entrance to the the garden, that the man couldn't return again. Once sent out, they couldn't return. And this message of hope and the arrival of Jesus Christ is the message that there is a way for man to be with God again. And that's found in the fact that God became us, Jesus in the flesh, Emmanuel, God, us. So Jesus comes all the way down. And this, what the what O Holy Night calls a thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. That Jesus comes in the form of a helpless child. God doesn't use military power, and I wonder what Ahaz would have thought thinking of this virgin child 
God doesn't use military power or worldly authorities to put us to flight or disperse darkness. He doesn't merely send messengers or ambassadors to represent him. He comes himself all the way down. The infinite becomes infant. Though supremely high, he becomes unimaginably low. Though he dwells in unapproachable light, he's born into a world of darkness. I'll close with this. Emmanuel takes on the weariness of the weary. Christmas is for the weary. Emmanuel takes on the troubles of the troubled. It's for the troubled. Emmanuel draws near to the estranged and the lonely. Maybe you need to hear that Christmas is for the estranged and the lonely. Emmanuel is the one who came the first time to save his people from their sins. And this world that we exist in now as pilgrims and exiles, as the people of God waiting for our future home, that we sit right now with the same sense of longing that, God, would you come? Come again. The second advent of Jesus. And we've looked at that in Second Peter through our study. And so for us as believers, it's not just a moment to look backward, but to look forward with any type of expectation that the people of Israel would have had at the moment that, as Matthew describes, the words were uttered to Joseph, that we would look for the same rescue, an ultimate rescue from Jesus when he comes again. As we celebrate this month, as we take time to prepare our hearts, I pray that the Lord would fill each and every one of the eager sense of longing for the arrival of Jesus when he comes again. He is and will be ultimately our Emmanuel, God with us as his people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that we need supernatural help to be able to sift through uh, the various things that compete for our attention and our affection and our focus during this season. And so I'm I do ask, God, for every single one of us that you'd help us to be able to sift through the commercialism, the sentimentality of, of Christmas and the Christmas in our culture to get all the way through it to this announcement that was given to Joseph by the angels that there would be a, a son born to, to him and to Mary, the one who would be called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins, the one who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And so, God, we marvel at your grace. Um, there's some degree to which like we, we need help to remember how lost we truly are without you. So I pray in this season that would happen as well, that we'd remember that this moment, that the incarnation where Jesus came all the way down into human history and time and space was for the weary and the broken, the unfaithful, for those who are estranged and lonely that, that you came near. And we bless you for that. God, we thank you that, Father, that you were willing to send your own son to be the one who would be your exact representation in human form. And we thank you, Jesus, that you completely obeyed the law and lived a life we could never live. And as a result, you were able to go to the cross. The very reason that you came was to give your life. So may we find our life in you May we find our rest in you. May we find our security in you. Would we trust you ultimately in this season and for the rest of our We love you and with a sense of longing, Lord, we 
look forward to the day where you will return and take us as your own, ultimately and finally. And I pray that that would be a part of our celebration this season as well, that second advent, the return and coming of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus. We love you and we thank you. In his name we pray. Amen.